Bibles, if you would please, today to Matthew chapter 6. Normally I would spend some time before we read the scriptures in introducing the text to you. But today we're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to read the scriptures first and then I'm going to get into some preliminaries that will help us to understand the setting of this passage. So if you'd stand with me please as we look into God's word. We want to look at Matthew chapter 6 beginning at verse number 19. Matthew 6 verse 19. We'll read down to verse number 24. Jesus is speaking and he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you today. We're thankful for your word and for those who have come to hear the message today. I just ask you, Lord, you would open our hearts that we might understand the contrast that Jesus is making in this passage. And Lord, just help us to get some realization of what is most important in life. We give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we begin a new section in this a powerful sermon that Jesus delivered in Galilee called the Sermon on the Mount. We began the study of this sermon uh, about one year ago uh, last week. And we've been very carefully and methodically going through this to help us to understand what Jesus meant when he said all of these things in this great sermon. I remember the day two years ago when we were standing on the Mount of Beatitudes and we were overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And I thought what a beautiful setting that was as Jesus preached the sermon from there. The day that we were there was not a day of turmoil. It wasn't a a bad day. It was a bright, sunshiny day. There was a little bit of coolness in the air, a Christmas there. And you wouldn't imagine that there would, could, could be anything but smiles and cheerfulness that would come from such a place that was such a beautiful spot. But on the day that Jesus preached this sermon, I could imagine that there was a lot of uneasiness in the crowd. Uh, People were listening intently to what he said, and I can imagine that there was a lot of squirming that was going on. Folks were beginning to feel quite uncomfortable with Jesus' teachings. Jesus' uh, preaching was turning everything that they had previously heard upside down. They thought that they were doing very well in their religion. But when Jesus began to explain the Scripture and he began to bring out the real meaning of God's Old Testament law, they began to see that all was not well. Either Jesus was an imposter or terribly wrong, or else their uh, religious leaders had duped them and they were in grave, serious danger of God's judgment. Now, we need to remember why they were there. Uh, why was Jesus able to assemble such a, a, such a large crowd? And why would they listen to this itinerant preacher who was actually stirring up so much trouble among their religious leaders? Well, if we go back to chapter 4 and the end of that chapter, we, we see why these people were there. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. 
And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments. And those which were possessed with devils. And those which were lunatic. And those that had palsy. And he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. So the real answer to why those people were there was because of the miracles. They'd never seen anything like this before. And so they were weighing in their minds whether what Jesus said could be true. If there's someone here who can heal from all physical diseases, and if there is a person who's actually able to cast demons out of people, then surely God's power must rest upon him. And so they had great hope as they listened to Jesus. They'd long been waiting for a deliverer. God's word had promised a Messiah. And so if Jesus was the one that God promised, then certainly they were willing to listen to what he had to say. Now that was the general feeling among the common people. But the religious elite didn't feel that way at all. They weren't too comfortable with what Jesus said. Because the more that Jesus taught, he began to expose their dishonesty and their hypocrisy. The scribes and the Pharisees were wrong in their teachings. And the wrongness of their teachings began to shine through. In chapter 5, we studied through that. And we saw how that Jesus began to shoot down all of their theological statements. And then he exposed that work system of salvation that they were preaching. And he said, that's a sham. The righteousness that they had was not nearly good enough to meet God's standard. And so their high and their mighty teachers were actually worse off than the people that they tried to instruct. Then we move into chapter 6. And there we find that Jesus attacks the religious practices of those people. And that, of course, was born out of the wrong theology that they were teaching. And we discover in the beginning of this chapter that their worship was wrong. Their giving was wrong. Their praying was wrong. Their acts of devotion were wrong. And Jesus described that as being done not to please God, but to be seen of men. And the most serious of all of that was in the way that they prayed. Prayer is high spiritual activity. And if prayer is wrong... It's not only a mistake, but it can become sinful and it can actually end up to be the very worst type of sin because it can become blasphemy against God. Now, you may not realize that because we live in a politically correct world and we don't want to upset anyone about their religion and we don't want to talk about what they're doing. But the fact is that if anyone tries to approach God without sacrifice, without being actually cleansed from their sin, God says to them, stay off of my mountain. Don't come near me. Now the key verse in this study has been in chapter 5, verse number 20. You heard me quote it so many times where Jesus made this shocking statement. He said, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was the beginning of teachings that said that everything in their religious system fell short. And that was shocking to them because the Pharisees had everybody fooled that they were the closest to God. There was no way that anyone could possibly have more righteousness than they had. But Jesus said even their pretended righteousness, even if it was all that they said that it was, it still would not be enough to grant them a place in God's kingdom. And for that, Jesus was teaching there must be a superior righteousness. It takes the goodness and it takes the holiness of God himself. That must be your righteousness. And if you don't have that, you are forever condemned in your sins. 
And so Jesus went all the way through their religion. He cut through their theology. He cut through their practices. And he left all of that uh, a, a heap of worthless sawdust. Now for nine weeks we have been studying how Jesus corrected their prayers. And in those 66 words of the Lord's Prayer that precedes this section, the correction was so deep that if they had been able to catch the meaning of each of those statements that Jesus gave, then that would have secured forever their place in the kingdom of God. But I suspect that they really didn't understand at all what Jesus was saying because time would tell and this huge crowd in two years' time would dwindle down to nothing. Now we thank God for this, that what Jesus said to them was not intended for them alone. The disciples who were believers, they listened to him. They were true believers and they did receive the instruction. And when he was ready to leave the world by going to the death of the cross, he prayed the real Lord's Prayer in John 17. And this is what he said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe through their word. And that means you and me. You see, the disciples would later recall the teachings of Jesus, and they would teach those words to others, and and those words would finally come down to us today, and through the operation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we would believe, we would trust Jesus, we would hear and believe those words that he said. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is so important for us because it contains lessons for every believer. And if we could just take what's said here and take this into our hearts and believe it and learn it and treasure it and practice it, this will develop in us a heart of real kingdom citizens and people who have a heart for God. Now, I want you to notice that in this section there is also a key verse, and it's verse number 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, we just entered into this new section where Jesus deals with probably Satan's number one area of temptation. And this may well be the very hardest part of our sinful lives to overcome. Here now, we're dealing with our relationship to the world. And what worldly temptation is there that often shackles us and takes our focus away from God's glory and God's kingdom? Well, the answer to that question is money. Materialism is almost always our greatest temptation. Now, some have wrongly quoted Scripture, and they've said that money is the root of all evil. Now, that's not really what the Scriptures say. The real quotation is found in 1 Timothy, and there Paul says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it's the inordinate affection that people have for money that the Word of God says is the root of all evil. And very pointedly, Paul says here that coveting after money has caused many to err from the faith, and that's been the source of untold amounts of sorrow. Now, money is such an important issue in the Word of God that almost one-third of the parables that Jesus gave were about money. He spoke about money more often than he did heaven and about hell combined. And the only subject that he spoke about more than money was actually the kingdom of God. And you know, I think there are a lot of preachers that have taken that as a cue today. And they think that, well, if money was so important to Jesus, then what I need to do is concentrate on money all the time. I'm going to preach on money all the time. And they're always trying to figure out ways to get more money, to get their hands on it. 
And so unfortunately, Christianity has become so overrun today by the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that Christians have been converted into modern-day Pharisees. And what needs to happen with that theology is it needs to be drubbed and that greed ground into the ground just as these people needed to have a good shellacking over about what is most important in the kingdom of God. Now you see, God is not interested in your bank account. He's not interested in making you wealthy. He's interested in your heart. Where is your heart? And what are you going to do with the money that you've been given by God in regards to his kingdom? And the Pharisees were in such bad shape about money that they had become consumed with what they had. They were possessed by their possessions. So much so that they thought that money was an indication of God's favor. And so their idea then was that the wealthiest of people, those are the ones that are the most holy. Those are the ones that have been blessed by God. And so when Jesus came along and he upset the apple cart on this issue and told them, stop piling up things on this earth, then there was another avenue of that self-righteous attitude that they had that Jesus had cut off. Now you see, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel today is just another variant of that age-old theme that produces greed and hypocrisy. And if you look behind that, often you'll find there's corruption there as well. So this is the thrust of Jesus' statements concerning money. It's not, do you have it or you don't have it? The interest is, what does it mean to you? What is your attitude towards money? And if you really look behind this, Jesus is not at all talking about the basic necessities of life. We're going to get into that in the next section. Here, he's not talking about your basic necessities. And he's not saying you shouldn't be concerned about how you're going to live. But he is speaking about what you do with the abundance that God has blessed you above all of your necessities. And he tells us here that if your heart is in your money, then it's not going to be on him. And if money is the thing that you think about constantly, then what you have done, you have put your treasure into this earth, and you haven't built up treasure in heaven. So we're going to look at this for a while. We're going to talk about this today and next week. And we'll also find that this is the background that will take us all the way through the end of the chapter as we deal with issues concerning anxiety as well. Now, it took me a long time to get here, but if you're keeping up with the outlines and you've been holding that pen ready, you know, just to get that first blank, well, here it is. The first blanks on your listening sheet is the contrast in riches. The contrast in riches. And the contrast here is earthly riches versus heavenly riches. Now, we notice verses 19 and 20 again. Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Now, since we are mostly talking about money, I do want you to understand that the underlying principle here is anything that you treasure. For some people, it's the house that you live in. For others... They covet fame and notoriety. Some put their trust in education and such things. Any of those things can qualify as treasures whenever they take the place of God and his service. But the most easily recognizable manifestation of treasure is what? Treasure. It's the money that you have. Now, for us, it's the, it's the money that we carry in our pockets, the dollar and cents. For those people, it was their gold coins and all of the material goods that they had that represented their money or their wealth. 
So money is the king that draws just about everybody into its service. But money will never bring security. And by contrast, Jesus begins to teach where real security is found. Now the contrast then begins with corruption versus incorruption. Now these people were astute enough to know that treasure in heaven is not the same as treasure on the earth, but they did need to be reminded about how one of these pales in comparison to the other. And that's because the treasures that are laid up on earth is corruptible. They're corruptible. Now notice how Jesus sets forth the contrast here and and talks about how our riches upon the earth, the material things that we have, can become corrupted. Now he says here, moths can corrupt riches. Now why does he talk about moths? Well, that's because uh, beside the gold coins that they had, they had their wealth vested in their clothing and the garments that they had. That was a symbol of wealth. You may remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament and how he stole some different items of wealth. Israel plundered Jericho, and there among the spoils, Achan saw some things that he wanted. Now, God said, all the spoils of the city will belong to me. But Achan was a very greedy man, and he loved loved earthly treasure. And so when he entered into the city, he saw some wealth that he wanted to get his hands on. Now, I just want to read you one portion of this. This is when Achan was later found out. Listen to the response that he gave. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Now there we see that the spoils of the city also included the garments, the types of clothing that they wore. And that was a symbol of wealth. Oftentimes, the clothes would actually have threads of gold that were woven into them. And to have these good garments, that was a symbol of wealth. Now, it's kind of interesting how that Achan was so overcome with greed that he was too short-sighted to see he would never get to wear those garments because then he would be found out what he had done. But that's a picture of a person's wealth, the clothes that they wore. And so when Jesus said, the moths can corrupt your wealth, he's talking about their clothing. Now, I don't know if people still use mothballs today. I haven't seen those in years. But I remember when I was a child, you used to put clothes into a cedar chest and you would put some mothballs in there because you didn't want the moths to eat your good clothes. So that's a form of corruption. And Jesus said, if that's where you put your wealth, then it can be corrupted. Then he goes on and he talks about rust that corrupts. You know, I've heard different explanations of what Jesus meant here. But I think the best that I've ever heard about this is that rust... Here, the real word does not refer to the rust like we think of today, not, not like iron rusting. So we're not talking about an oxidation process that takes place and it ruins metal. But here, Jesus is actually speaking about the grain or, or the things that they put into their barns, their harvest of their crops. And he refers to this and says that the spoil, uh, spoil, it can be spoiled. Mice and rodents and all kinds of different things can get into that and they can ruin your food supply. If that's the thing that you're putting trust in, then that can be ruined. 
Now you'll notice in other places that Jesus talked about building barns and putting all of the, the harvest and the, and the produce into the barns. And Jesus gave that story about a man who had so much, his harvest was so great, that he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. And what Jesus is trying to point out is that if that is where you put your trust, if that's what you're, you're looking at, then that kind of wealth can be defiled as well. He says the varmints can get in there and they can eat your grain. Now, how many of you have ever seen this happen? I mean, you know what happens, or I should say, you know what happens when a mouse gets into one of your cupboards? What are those little gifts that he lives by, leaves behind? I mean, those little black things that get into your food. You know exactly what I mean. You're not going to eat that food after a mouse has done his business in it. Jesus says your food, the abundance of your, of your wealth that you store up in that way, that can also become corrupted. Then he talks about thieves that break through and steal. He says they can steal your wealth. Now we might be thinking here that Jesus is talking about just a thief coming and breaking into your house and stealing your safe or something like that and, and hauling it off. But in those days, what people would often do is they would actually bury their treasure, bury their, their, their goods, bury their, their wealth. They would hide it in the earth. Now, there's another story that we have in the Bible. I don't have time to go into it now. But in Matthew chapter 25, there's the story of the talents. And there, a man's servants were given different measures of money. And each of them was supposed to take that money and to invest it for their master. And then they would bring back the gain that they got from investing it. But one of the servants didn't do that. Instead, he took his money and he hid it in the earth. He dug a hole to put it in. Well, why did he do that? Well, he did that because in those days there weren't banks to put your money in. And so people were afraid that money would be stolen. So lots of times they would go out and they would dig holes in the fields. And there they would hide their money. Now that's what that servant did. Over the years of Roman occupation in Israel, there were a lot of Jews that were killed. And there were holes that had been dug all over the place. And there was money that was hidden in their holes, those holes. And so when those people were killed, then nobody would know where the money was. I mean, nobody could claim that because it had been hidden. And so even today, you can go out and, and sometimes this happens that people will be in Israel and they'll dig in the fields and they'll dig up some treasure that somebody buried there. Now, in the time of Jesus... Thieves knew that people dug holes to bury their money. And so they would watch people. And when they saw somebody out in the middle of the field, apparently for no business or no apparent reason, then they would assume that what this person is doing is they're digging a hole to hide some money. And so they would watch that. And then when that person was around, they would go and they would dig up the money and they would steal it. You see, the whole point of this is that Jesus says, no matter how you try to protect your money, no matter how much you try to pile up for yourself, no matter how much wealth that you have, if you keep hoarding it, eventually you're going to lose it. And if you don't lose it now, you will lose it later. And that's because, as we all know, you can't take it with you when you die. So he's merely pointing out to us here that there is no lasting security in your money. And nothing has changed over the centuries because way back from the very beginning, men started trying to figure out how they could get money and how they could hold on to it. And they started figuring out ways to get their hands on as much money as they could. Now, we're going to look here for just a moment 
at a story that we find in the Bible. And I'm re- I was reminded of this as I was looking uh, over this passage, that story about Abraham and Lot. Now, both of them were very prosperous men, and both of them were blessed by God. And I believe that Lot was mostly blessed because he had an association with his uncle Abraham. And he was like a lot of relatives. Those relatives, you know, that hang on to the coattails of family. I mean, they know that uh, somebody in the family has some money, and they, and they really don't love the family so much, but they know that someone in the family that has a lot of money may let those blessings spill over to the rest of the family. And Abraham was that kind of a man. He was a sharing man. He was a faithful man. And he obtained riches, but he never let the riches get out of balance. He always had that in the proper perspective. But Lot, his nephew, seems to be a man that was a hanger-on. And he probably wouldn't have amounted to much without Abraham because his true character was seen when there was a division that developed between him and Abraham over wealth. Now, Abraham wasn't too concerned about hedging his wealth because he knew if God gave him the wealth, then God was certainly able to take care of it. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 13 for a moment. And here we find an event of separation between Abraham and Lot over money. And the choices that each of these men made tells us where their heart was. In Genesis chapter 13, if you look please at verse number 5, is where we'll begin reading. Genesis 13 verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, this is when they were called out, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Now let's notice the difference between these two men, a contrast here. First of all, we see an example of saving possessions to later lose. Now, wealth will often bring strife between people. And here we see that wealth was starting to put a strain on family relationships. Abraham recognized that in, uh, in order to bring peace between these two, between this situation, he, he recognized that he and Lot were going to have to split up and they would have to go their separate ways. Now, there doesn't appear to be any personal strife between Abraham and Lot, but there most definitely was a lot of strife between their servants and their households. They were having a problem with each other. Now, Abraham's view was that sacrificing peace is no way for a person to live. And so if that meant giving up his most advantageous position, that it would be better to do that than it would be to hang on to his wealth. 
Now, Lot was one who didn't really care so much about the peace. He was looking at a way that his wealth could increase. And so he looked down into the plains that were before him. And he looked down in the valley and he saw all of that green grass. And he saw how that would fatten up his herds. And he saw how much easier it was to walk on the level ground rather than to walk on the rocky hillsides. Lot said, I'll take the plains of Jordan. Lot had his choice. He knew what was down in that valley. He knew the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was there. But he thought that that was easy enough to get along with if he could keep building his wealth. And so what Lot decided to do, he decided to sacrifice his family and to sacrifice his relation, relationship with God rather than sacrificing his wealth. And so he took his family down into the so- uh, city of Sodom without regard for what it would do to them spiritually. And he put his family into the middle of a cesspool. And it wasn't long before his two daughters had married heathen men and they got caught up into the lifestyle and the culture of Sodom. I don't have time to go into the whole story today. I think you know it well that in the end, Lot escaped Sodom, but all that he had was his shirt on his back. And then God burned that entire city to the ground. See, what Lot was trying to do, he was trying to figure out how he could save his wealth and how he can increase his wealth. And it came at the expense of his family and his relationship with God. Now, he had all of these possessions he was trying to save, but eventually he lost everything that was important to him. Now, that's not much different than you see what happens in a lot of Christian families today. A few years ago, we had a really nice family that was saved here at Berean. And they started to get into the ministry here. But as their children grew up, the family started to get into the social scene and into the recreation scene. And they thought that it was better for their children to get into the programs that were going on at school and to get into the cheerleading and to get into the ball teams and all of that. And it wasn't long before that family started missing church. And then the kids became convinced that church wasn't too important after all. They were following the example of mom and dad. And so this man began to lose his family. Now he became convinced of that. And so he came back for a little while and he was broken. And he came to me and he told me, I've started to lose control of my family. What we need to do is we need to get back in church and we need to get our lives straightened up and serve God. And they tried it for a little while. But the allure of work and of building up their wealth and keeping their kids popular and all the things they wanted for their kids, that family finally stopped going to church. Now, I wonder where that family is today. Like Lot, they were concentrating on everything that the world had to offer. And in the end, with Lot, everything that he tried to save was lost. Now, there's a different outcome, a contrast that we see with Abraham, because Abraham was losing possessions to later save. See, this was a very big decision to let Lot have his way. But you know, I suspect that if Lot had chosen differently and if he had said, you know, I'm not going to go into the plains of Jordan. Abraham, you can have that. I think that Abraham was the kind of man who still would not have gone down into the well-watered plains of Jordan. He saw the corruption was there. And so I think what Abraham would have done, he would have just pushed up higher into the hills and just gone higher into the hills and sacrificed his wealth rather than to go down into the plains of Jordan. But Abraham actually didn't have to make that decision because by default he took the higher country. 
But you know what happened to Abraham when he started back up on that rocky hillside? We find the answer in verses 14 through 18. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, and the length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and dwelt and built an altar there unto the Lord. Now do you see the difference between these two? As soon as Abraham was willing to put his wealth into God's hands and to let God secure it for him, God said, look around, Abraham, because everything that you see on the north and on the south and on the east and the west, all of this is yours and it will be yours forever. And you know what happened to Abraham? He became the father of multiple nations. He became the spiritual head of the faithful. And through Abraham, Christ came. And so here we find Jesus Christ, the very one who spoke this sermon, was sent down to this earth through the loins of Abraham. And here is Jesus speaking about his kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom that he promises to establish upon this earth, and the spiritual seed of Abraham will live in that kingdom forever, and they'll rule and reign with Christ. Now to Abraham, it wasn't too much to forsake the earthly riches, because he knew he could lose it all now, and no matter what, he would gain it all and more later. Now you may be thinking today, well, what are you talking about when you say earthly treasure versus heavenly treasure? Well, the earthly treasure we've got figured out, I think. Some of you have it in bank accounts. You've got it in stocks and bonds. You have it in real estate. We understand the value of our money very well. We know what money can do for us. We know that money makes our lives much easier. As I said before, somebody said money isn't everything, but it sure beats whatever's in second place. So we know what money can do for us. We can touch it. There are very tangible results in our lives. But no matter how much we gain, the truth is still here from the Word of God. We cannot take it with us. And the time that we waste in gaining it, and the short time that we have it here, in no way compares to the time that we're going to spend in heaven with a much better treasure. Now you see, the treasure of heaven can't be measured in earthly quantities. The Word of God says that there is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. And it says this is laid up in heaven for you when you faithfully serve the Lord. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now Jesus has given us that contrast there are, in, there are incorruptible riches. There are riches that can be laid up where moths and rust and thieves cannot break through and steal. Now this is a start on the subject. This is a very, very important subject. And Jesus knew this 
overwhelming propensity that we have to run after wealth. And we will often do it to our detriment, to our peace, to our detriment of our peace and our happiness and our eternal welfare. And we're going to come back to this and we're going to spend some more time with it and get some other teachings from the passage. But now I want to take you back to that key verse one more time before I close. Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There is so much teaching that Jesus is going to show us here about trying to pile up worth, trying to save it for ourselves, and not investing into God's kingdom. Now, if you count your salvation in Christ as your most precious possession, and if you count Christ himself as more valuable than all the treasures that the world can offer, then you're going to spend your time working for his kingdom rather than working for your wealth. Now, you remember that very important petition that Jesus had in the Lord's Prayer, the one about the kingdom? He said, thy kingdom come. And do you remember that that was a petition about evangelism and about service? And folks, it was a petition about the most important thing that could ever happen in the life of an individual. And that is to know that your sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing that can ever happen to you. Jesus said that before you can see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so that's where Christ tells us to put our treasure. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And we're to put our time and our efforts into building the kingdom of God. And he says that the doing of that will bring a reward that will never corrupt. It's an eternal reward for eternal people that live in an eternal kingdom. And so I want to tell you today, the most important thing that you can ever do is to put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is the only way that you're going to get out of this life with anything at all. And you'll escape with your soul and lay up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus is trying to teach in this first part of this passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teachings that we have received from your word. Lord, there is this great temptation that lays before us all the time that we take our focus upon you, off of your kingdom, off of you, and we put it into the things that we can accumulate for ourselves upon this earth. You've already promised us that you would take care of our needs, and then those things that you give above that, you want us to invest into your kingdom. It's better for us to invest in the lives of people and to invest in the kingdom of God and to see people saved than it is to hoard up all the resources that we can and use them for ourselves. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to some person today. If they don't know Christ as Savior, that you would open up their hearts to the gospel of Christ. Then I pray for members of this church, for Christians that are here today, that you'd help us to keep the focus right. The most important thing that we can ever do is to serve you, and we serve you in the way that you have already prescribed for us to serve you. Your way is always the best way. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.